you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 21. We're going to read a portion out of John 21 in just a moment. You can kind of put your finger there, and I'll get there in just a minute. But John chapter 21. You know, we all know this kind of person. The person who acts as if he knows and understands everything, but who in reality actually doesn't understand hardly anything at all. I'm absolutely positive that if that you know a couple people like this. If you just sit and think about it for a minute, this kind of person can really talk a big story and they really do their best to appear like they have a deep insight into a lot of important areas of life. But sooner or later, when the whole story is known, it turns out they didn't understand it hardly at all. Maybe you've heard this story, but I'm reminded of the story of a group of ditch diggers who were all gathered together in the sun complaining about their work. And they're just arguing about how it just wasn't right that they had to do all the work, they had to do all the digging in the sun, while their boss didn't do anything at all. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the boss earned more money than they did too. And it just didn't seem to be right. Well, finally one of the ditch diggers climbed out of the ditch and he walked over to his boss, who of course was comfortably stretched out under the shade of a tree. And he said, boss, I've got to ask you something which is really bothering me. Why is it that we do all the work we have to stand in the ditch in the hot sun and dig all day long while you sit over here and do nothing at all and then you end up making more money than we do. We know just as much about digging ditches as you do and we do all the work as well. Well, the boss looked at his work and said, well, let me explain it to you. You see, it's like this. It's not a case of knowledge or know-how which is important here. This is a case of pure wisdom. I am smarter than you. I am wiser, and that's why I earn more money than you, even though you do all the work. Well, what do you mean you're smarter? The man said, I'm just as smart as you are. The boss smiled at him and said, well, come here. I'll show you what I mean. So the boss stretched his arm out and placed his hand in front of a big tree that he had been lying under. And he said, you see my hand here? He said, I want you to pick up your shovel, and I want you to hit my hand just as hard as you can with your shovel. Well, the worker picked up his shovel and thought, yeah, this is my chance to get back at this smart aleck. I'll show him what's going on. And so he drew back his shovel, and he swung with every bit of his strength. And, of course, just before the shovel reached his hand, the boss pulled his hand away from the tree. And the shovel slammed against that tree. If you've ever done something like that, then you just know how the pain runs through every bit of your body as it travels through the shovel into your hands and seems to touch every bit of your body. The boss said, see... We both have the same knowledge and know-how about digging ditches, but I'm smarter. Oh, now I think I understand. Yeah, yeah, now I understand it completely. Thanks, boss. So the man walked back over to the other diggers, and they all asked him what the boss had said. The man answered, listen, guys, it's just really quite simple. There's actually a big difference between people like the boss and me and just ordinary people like all the rest of you guys. You guys have know-how, You've got knowledge, but the boss and and me, and he explains to me really well, we've got wisdom. Well, all the other workers laughed and said, oh, give me a break. You're nuts. You, wise, don't be ridiculous. The man answered, no, really, guys, it's really quite simple. Let let me show you. It's very clear to me now. Let me show you what I mean. He said, listen, pick up your shovel and hit my hand as hard as as you can with it. And then he put his arm out and put his hand right in front of his face. If you don't get it, try it sometime. No, no, don't do that. 
I think we all know people like this. People who act as if they understand lots of things, but in fact, they really don't understand hardly anything at all. Now, I do not want to be unkind or disrespectful, but I believe that Peter was often exactly like this kind of person. He acted like he understood what was going on in the ministry of Jesus, but in fact, he didn't understand much of it, of it at all. Now, you need to understand something. When I say this about Peter, I do not say it because I do not like him or because I'm looking down on him. Not at all. To be honest, I couldn't be happier that Peter was one of the disciples. And do you know why? Because Peter's a person that I can identify with. Peter's the one who acts like he understands and knows what is really going on in the ministry of Jesus, when in fact he really doesn't get it very well at all. He really hardly has a clue. Peter's the one who says to Jesus, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What an insight he had, right? But then he turns around and tells Jesus right afterwards that he has to stop all this foolish talk about suffering and dying. Obviously, he just didn't get it. Peter's the one who says that he's willing to devote his entire life to Jesus. He says he'll do anything for Jesus. But then he falls asleep when the Lord asks him to pray with him for 15 minutes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter's the one who wants to sleep when Jesus wants to wage the, the battle in prayer. And then Peter's the one who later wants to take up his sword and fight and even slices off the servant's ear with his sword when Jesus wants to peacefully surrender to the soldiers. He just doesn't get it. With Peter, you never really know what's going to happen. And so this evening, I want to read a passage of Scripture with you about Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, John chapter 21, I'd like to read several verses. Would you stand with me as we read from the Lord's Word this evening? John chapter 21, first verses 1 through 8. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Then I'd like to skip down to verse 15. When they had finished eating, Simon said, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, 
feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we'd ask that you would allow your word to be the living word in each one of our lives again this evening as you would speak your message, your text, your word to us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In order to truly understand this encounter between Jesus and Peter, we have to look back at their previous meeting. We have to look back at what happened the last time they were together. That was an encounter that Peter would have loved to have forgotten. What a disaster. What a tragedy. It was bad enough that Jesus was arrested and taken away by the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. Peter, you remember Peter, the one who said that he would give his entire life for Jesus? Well, Peter ran away with all the rest of the disciples. Peter had wanted to fight. He even tried to defend Jesus with his sword, but Jesus had stopped him. Obviously, Peter was wrong once again. But the worst was yet to come. Peter didn't just run away and leave Jesus behind. No, then he denied Jesus. Not just one time. No, this is Peter we're talking about. Not just one time. He denied him three times. When someone suggested that Peter knew Jesus, he denied it. Three different times. Luke's Gospel tells us that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, Jesus turned around and he looked at Peter. Peter would never forget the look in Jesus' face that day. Then they took Jesus away and crucified him. They killed him. Jesus was dead. This was their last encounter. This was the last memory that Peter had of Jesus. Can you imagine it? This is his last memory of Jesus. His last memory of Jesus was not some remarkable miracle. It was not one of his sermons or one of his parables. Peter's last memory was not the last time when they sat down to supper together. And the mysterious words that Jesus had spoken over the bread and the wine. No. The last memory of Jesus, which Peter carried with him, was a memory of his own terrible failure. His own words of denial and the painfully hurt look in the eyes of Jesus. And then Jesus was dead. What a terrible memory. Yeah, to be really honest, I have to admit that I can identify with Peter very well. And so can you. Peter's not the only person who has denied Jesus. Peter's not the only person who loves Jesus really well with his words, but then denies Jesus with his actions. How often have I done this? How often have you done that? When we are alone with Jesus during our devotions and prayer, it's so easy for us to tell him that he means everything to us. So easy for us to say that he is most important. But what do we do when our faith is under fire? What do we do when someone at our work or at home challenges our faith in Christ? What do we do when someone doubts that we truly love Jesus? What happens when we fall into temptation? What happens when we catch ourselves in a sin? What happens then? How can we make our way back to Jesus? How can we make our way back? 
when we read John chapter 21, we must not forget this last encounter between Jesus and Peter. Peter had failed. He had denied Jesus. How could he go on? What could he possibly do? Well, in John chapter 21, we find some of the answers to these questions. In John, John chapter 21, we find Peter on a fisherman's boat. Now it's seen, that it seemed that everything was lost. Peter and six of his other disciples decided to go back to their old trade of business. They went back to fishing. They were fishermen by trade. This is something which they had done, many of them had done their entire lives, from the time that they were little children. You can almost say that many of them were born with a fishing pole in their hands. After all the confusion and disappointment surrounding the capture and death of Jesus, they were going back to something that they really did understand. They went back to their fishing boats. But wouldn't you know it, their despair, their despair and pain only got worse. They fished the entire night long, and do you know how many fish they caught? A big, fat zero. None. Now, if they weren't depressed before, they were certainly depressed now. All night long, and not one fish to show for it. When the light of the morning began to dawn upon them, they saw someone standing on the shore. The man called out to them, asked them whether they had caught anything. Isn't it funny when you're fishing and you don't catch anything? That's when someone asks you if you have. Same thing happened to them. Then he gave them the most ridiculous advice they'd ever heard. Hey, guys, try casting your nets on the other side of the boat. Yeah, right. As if that's going to help, right? Well, it was ridiculous. But, you know, if you've been fishing all night long, you don't have even one fish to show for it, I guess you'll try just about anything, right? It wasn't until the nets swelled up with a tremendous catch of fish that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, recognized the man on shore as Jesus. And according to John's gospel, this is how the disciples first met the resurrected Jesus. As we look at this encounter, this meeting between Jesus and his seven disciples here on the seashore, I want us for this evening to push the other six disciples to the side, and I want us to focus our attention only on Jesus and upon Peter. When we look at Jesus, one of the first things that strikes me when I read this chapter is the fact that it is Jesus who comes looking for Peter. Jesus is the one who is looking for Peter here. This is the first and perhaps the most important observation that we can make about Jesus. Jesus is looking for us. That's an amazing truth. Jesus is looking for us. This is a fact which we need to allow to sink into our thoughts and our minds. Jesus is looking for me, and Jesus is looking for you. As we've already seen, the last encounter between Jesus and Peter was a complete disaster. Because of Peter's denial of Jesus, the relationship between them had been broken. How could Peter ever make it up to Jesus? And once again, he hadn't denied Jesus just one time, but three different times. How could he make his way back to Jesus? The fact is that Peter was powerless. He could do nothing about this. He wanted to look for Jesus. I think that this is the reason why he had run to the empty grave when he had heard from the women that Jesus had been raised from the death. But it was hopeless. The grave was empty. Jesus had disappeared out of his life. He was dead. And Peter could do nothing about it. And that's the very reason why Jesus was looking for Peter. Jesus knew that Peter was no longer able to seek him. From a human standpoint, as far as Peter was concerned, it was over. 
There was no more hope. He had failed. He had denied Jesus. He had turned his back on Jesus. And he had abandoned him. Nonetheless, despite all the failings of Peter, Jesus came looking for him. It's sometimes difficult for us to understand why Jesus would look for us. From a human standpoint, it often seems like our chances are completely gone. It's all over. We have failed too often. We have sinned too often. We've turned our backs on Jesus too often. And yet the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus looks for us anyway. And today he's looking for us. It's our task to listen to him and to come to him. When Peter was feeling alone and miserable, when Peter had no idea as to how he could ever make his way back to Jesus, when he thought that forgiveness and reconciliation were no longer possible, then Jesus appeared before him. Jesus was looking for Peter. And so this is the first very important observation we need to make. The fact that it is Jesus who is looking for Peter. But there's also something else we need to see in this story. When Jesus finds Peter, Jesus gives to him what Peter needs. Jesus forgives Peter. I think this is one of the most beautiful stories of forgiveness in the Bible. We read in verses 15 through 19 how Jesus forgives Peter. We've already talked about the last memory which Peter carried with him of his own denial of Jesus. And yet Jesus forgives him. Simon, son of John, you truly love me. Peter needed to know that his own failure, his own denial was completely forgiven. The time would perhaps come when he would doubt whether he had really been forgiven. And so Jesus asked him a second time and asked him also a third time, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I'm not sure if we really understand the deep significance of this question. At first glance, it seems like such a simple question. Jesus asked the question, Peter, do you love me? Dan, do you truly love me? He asked you the very same question, friend, do you truly love me? It's actually a very simple question. But our answer to this question will determine the rest of our lives. Do you love Jesus? Do you accept his forgiveness? Your answer, yes or no, will determine the direction of your life until the day you die. And it will also determine the direction of your life after you die. Friend, do you truly love me? I think it's kind of ironic that nothing is said in this story about the love which Jesus had for Peter. Have you noticed that? There's not a single word, not a single explicit word said in this passage about Jesus' love for Peter. And yet the love of Jesus is the very foundation upon which this entire story is built. Jesus' appearance, his presence, his questions to Peter can only be interpreted in the light of an all-encompassing love. In this first appearance of Jesus to Peter, it is the love of the resurrected Jesus which completely saturates this story. If not for love, Jesus wouldn't have been there at all. The love of Jesus is the foundation for our forgiveness as well. We can never earn his forgiveness. It's a gift. Out of his great love for us, Jesus gives us what we need the most, forgiveness and reconciliation. But there's also a third observation which I want to make about Jesus in this story. What is so encouraging to me about this story is the fact that Jesus not only looks for Peter and forgives Peter, 
But Jesus also restores Peter. Jesus reinstates Peter in his kingdom, despite his failings in the past. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus forgives Peter and then restores him within his kingdom. But how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus restore or reinstate Peter? I think there's a very valuable lesson for us to learn here. Do you know what the requirement is for service in the kingdom of God? Do you know what you have to do in order to serve within the kingdom of God? What's the basic requirement? Is it talent? Is it some special type of gift? Is it willingness or availability? Is it some kind of knowledge or profession? No. The basic requirement for service in the kingdom of God is love. Love and nothing else. And so there you have it. It's our attitude towards Jesus that makes us useful or useless for his kingdom. An attitude of love. You know, one of the great benefits of being a preacher's kid and being in church every day of my life growing up, it seemed that way, is that I heard my dad do a lot of preaching and tell lots of stories. And one of the stories he told is a story that I'd like to share with you. You may have heard it before, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, there was once a king who was looking for a new coachman for his royal carriage. And so he sent out one of his most faithful servants throughout the entire land to find for him the three most skilled drivers of the kingdom. When the servant returned with these three drivers, the king took the men up to a road in the mountains, and there on the side of the path was the royal carriage hitched up to six fast and strong horses. The trail through the mountains there was a very dangerous and treacherous road. There were many hairpin curves which had claimed the lives of many coach drivers, and of course their passengers as well. So the king said to these men, before I can choose one of you to be my royal driver, I want to see what kind of driving I can expect from you. I want you to show me how good of a driver you really are. And so I want you to do this. I want you to imagine that the queen and I are riding in the carriage. I will stand here and watch, and I'll make my judgment. So the first coachman climbed up on the carriage and took the reins into his hands. With a quick snap of the reins, he drove the horses over the road at an incredible speed. Close by where the king was standing and watching, there was a sharp hairpin curve. Without even the slightest reduction in speed, this driver flew through that dangerous curve. With a sense of proud certainty, he led the king to the edge of that curve and pointed out how his wheels had come to within five inches of the edge of that cliff. He said, see what kind of driver I am. Well, the second coachman did the same thing, but his drive was even faster, if you can imagine that. He also led the king to the edge of the road, which bordered on the deep cliff below. And the wheels had come within two inches of that deadly precipice of the cliff. Well, the suspense grew as this third driver climbed up on the carriage. And so once again, with a practiced flip of the reins, he also began his ride over this trail. And for the third time, the powerful horses with the royal carriage flew over that mountain road. Everyone held their breath as the carriage drew closer to the hairpin curve. How close could he come to the edge of the cliff? How many inches or, or fractions of an inch would separate the wheels of the carriage from the deadly precipice below? Well, to the amazement of the other two drivers, the third driver didn't drive the carriage close to the edge of the cliff at all. As he approached that hairpin curve, the driver slowed the horses down. 
Then he went around that corner as far away from the edge of the cliff as he could and as close to the side of the mountain as he could possibly get. When the man climbed down from the carriage, the king asked him why he had driven so far away from the edge of the cliff. The man bowed before the king and answered, When I began to drive the horses, your majesty, I was determined to completely dazzle you with how close I could bring the carriage to the edge of the cliff. But then I remembered what you had said. And I had to imagine that you and the queen were sitting in the carriage. I would never want to expose you or the queen to danger, your majesty. And that is the reason why I drove around the curve as far away from the cliff as I could get. It was to protect you and your queen. Well, the king looked at this man with a smile and said, You've done well, my friend. He said, Your skill and the skill of the other two drivers was already proven by the fact that my faithful servant had chosen you to drive for me. But now I have the proof of something which is even more important. Now I have the proof of your love and devotion to me. You are the one I want to serve me. Do you know what the requirement is for service in the kingdom of God? It's not some special gift. It's not some special knowledge or even an education. It is love. Jesus asks us this simple question, friend, do you truly love me? If you do, then I can use you. If you love me, then there is a place for you in my kingdom, but only if you love me. You see, Jesus has a place for each one of us in his kingdom. Have you already found your place? It was never God's intention that we should just roam around with his, within his kingdom. No, he has a place for you. He has a task for you to perform. He wants to restore you to your position in his kingdom, if you love him. Well, before we stop this evening, we have to go back quickly to Peter. There are a whole bunch of things that we could say about Peter here, but don't worry, I'm only going to make one observation about Peter. Unfortunately, as those of you in my class know, my one observation is made up of six different parts. <laughs> I'm just joking. Just one point, one observation. There's not a quiz next week. As I've already said, Peter is someone that I can identify with. He is so unpredictable. The one time he acts as if he knows what's going on, and he really doesn't have a clue at all. And then the next time he shows up and does exactly what is needed in the situation. I think it's great. We see Peter doing this once again here in John chapter 21. The first couple of times I read this story, I really had to laugh at Peter. It seems like Peter really has something going on with water. Right? He's jumping out into it, trying to walk. He's sinking in it. He's fishing in it. He's falling into it. This is Peter. I don't know why it is, but every time we turn around, it seems like Peter has gone ahead and jumped into the water for some reason. And here we find him again in the water. Well, we already read that Peter and six of the other disciples had gone out fishing. And so when Jesus recognized, excuse me, when John recognized the man on the shore as Jesus, what did Peter do? We read it in verse 7. John writes, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Why did Peter jump into the water? I think this is so strange. Why did Peter jump into the lake? John doesn't give us any explanation as to why Peter did this. Although I think that by this time, John knew Peter well enough not to try to explain everything that Peter was doing, right? Um, but why did Peter jump into the water? It was certainly not to go for a swim. Otherwise, he would have taken his clothes off instead of putting his clothes on, right? So he wasn't just going for a swim. And the net was now full of fish, and so 
He certainly didn't jump into the water out of his frustration to try some new method of catching fish with his bare hand, although a night without catching fish would probably force you to do that kind of thing. So why did Peter jump into the lake? Well, I've looked at this passage, and I've thought about it, and I can only think of one reasonable explanation as to why Peter did this. Peter saw his chance to come to Jesus, and he took that chance immediately. He took it immediately. Peter saw his chance to come back to the Lord Jesus. And so he grabbed that chance immediately. He didn't wait. He didn't make sure to, that the nets were taken care of first. He didn't first take the time to discuss it with his friends. No, as soon as he saw it was Jesus, he just jumped. He saw his chance to come back to Jesus. And so he jumped. When I finally realized why Peter jumped in the water. I couldn't laugh at him anymore. Instead, I had to cry about myself. Lord, help me to jump. Help me to jump. I have, confessed, I have to confess that I've seen many chances in my life to come to Jesus. Chances to get even closer to Jesus. And I just stayed sitting in the boat. I didn't jump. I was too concerned about what someone else might think about what someone might say. What would they think if I went down to the altar? What would they think if I, if I would pray now? And so I didn't jump. I didn't have the courage, and so I stayed in the boat. How often have we allowed the busyness of our lives to prevent us from drawing closer to Jesus? How often have we allowed, how often have we allowed our friendships to prevent us from taking the steps towards Jesus that are possible and necessary to draw close to Him? How often we allowed our study at the Bible College of all places to prevent us from drawing closer to Jesus, from taking those steps we need to come closer to Him. Peter saw his chance. He saw the possibility to come closer to Jesus. And so he didn't wait. He just jumped. You know, this evening it's as if we're all sitting in a big boat. We're together. There are people around us, friends, acquaintances, and we're busy looking at a story in the Bible. And then Jesus comes. And I believe Jesus is here with us now. Who wants to jump in the water? Today we have the chance, this evening we have the chance, to come closer to Jesus. We need to jump. We need to take the chance. He's here this evening looking for you. He's looking for me. He wants us to come closer to Him. He wants us to take our place in His kingdom. But first we need to step out of the boat and jump. Who wants to jump in the water? Here, my Lord, I want to jump. to fathom the grace of Jesus that reaches out, out to us even when we don't deserve it. We praise His name. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the opportunities you give us to draw nearer to Jesus. And Father, we've had that opportunity, we have that opportunity this evening. 
I pray that you would help us to take those steps that are necessary to come into your presence so that your forgiveness can wipe away our sins. So your words of grace can bring us onto a new path or bring us back to the path that we know we should be on. That your presence can embrace us in times of difficulties when we've felt we've been so distant from you. When we just know that you're with us, Lord. And we thank you for that opportunity you've given us this evening. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would help us to take advantage of those opportunities. Father, I thank you for the love of Jesus that makes it possible for our lives to be continually transformed more and more into the image of Christ himself. So I pray, Father, this evening, and actually throughout our lives, that that would be our goal, our striving, is to come closer and closer to you. There's nothing else we need, nothing else that we truly long for, except your presence, your grace, your forgiveness, and your reinstatement, your reconciliation to your kingdom. And we give you thanks for that, Lord. Pray as we go back to our classes, Lord, that you would remind us of those opportunities that as they come, that we would be drawn closer to you. We allow nothing to separate us, but that we'll draw ourselves close to you as you come into our midst. These things we pray in the matchless and gracious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.